Well, good morning again. Thank you so much for being here. We are going to jump back into the Word of God. Young people, if you draw pictures of me, please don't show me. I don't, I don't want no part of that, but feel free. We, uh, we closed on the land that our church passed this week. I want to show you a few pictures of our land because I'm super excited about it. It is a beautiful 20 acre, which we're not keeping all of, but beautiful 20 acre parcel of land out on Love Lane. I went out there at sunset so you guys could see how amazingly beautiful it is. We are so excited about the future that God hopefully has for us on that piece of land. And I am so grateful for those of you who have already been a part of this process And then moving forward, we don't have any big announcements, but at some point we're going to start talking about what it means for us to build a building on that land and how we can uh, be a part of that and and raise some finances for that and all sorts of things. And so uh, please just continue to pray that God would bless this. He has already. I, I could tell you so many stories already of how we thought this was a dead deal. It wasn't going to happen. And then God just opened up doors And there's things going on behind the scenes that it's just like, man, God, you are doing amazing things. And so we are excited about it, and I hope you are excited about it as well. With that, we're going to jump back into the Word of God. Last week, we talked about the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. This week, we're going to talk about John the Baptist, which is providential because we're doing baptisms today. And we're going to talk about baptism, and I didn't even plan it. It just worked that way because God is good all the time. And so we're going to talk about that. I want to start out with this, though. You probably know this, but if you don't, pride is a problem for us. Pride is a massive problem for humanity, and it is at the root of all of the sins that we struggle with as human beings. Pride is like a cancer to our human soul. And you can look back at the whole history of humanity and the whole story of the Bible, and you can see how pride has brought destruction again and again and again. If you've read through the story, you can think back to the Garden of Eden when everything was perfect and we were in perfect community and connection with the Lord. And then we grow prideful We decide that we want to be our own gods. We decide that we think we can do the job better than God can. And so we eat the fruit to try to become like gods ourselves. And it brings destruction into that relationship. Soon after that, the first time that we see one human being taking another human being's life is because Cain grows prideful and kills his own brother. It's pride that motivated the people to try to build the Tower of Babel so that they could go up and and take the power of God away from him as if that were possible. It is pride that led King David to believe that he should have Bathsheba even though she was someone else's wife. He thought, I deserve whatever I want. It's pride and arrogance that lead the religious leaders to become jealous of Jesus And that ends up with him being crucified. And we can go on and on and on. And we can even talk about this in modern times 
of how pride starts the wars and battles that we are going through now. The old verse that you've probably heard that is actually somewhat misquoted a lot. You've heard a lot of times people say, pride cometh before the fall, right? But Proverbs 16 actually says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, right? Pride comes in, it brings destruction, and we have this haughty spirit, this arrogance, this pride that rises up in us, that we are indeed the one who is in charge of our own lives and in charge of what should be right and wrong, even though we are not. We can see this a lot in this world of celebrity status that we live in. You can see pride running rampant, and it's not new, but sometimes it feels like it's growing even more. Anybody that knows me at all, you know that I'm a sports fan. I love watching sports, especially football. But the arrogance and pride that permeates professional sports now is palpable. And like I said, it's not brand new. I remember when I was in high school, you watched Terrell Owens, if you remember this guy. He was not known for his humility. He would do interviews while doing sit-ups with no shirt on, just so that people could see his abs. And this is his famous quote, I love me some me. It's a little prideful, wouldn't you say? From there, the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. I'm not going to argue that, even though I don't like him that much. There is no I in team, but there's an I in win. That's one of his favorites. The one that blows me away currently, and I'm not talking bad, he's an amazing basketball player, but if you follow Kevin Durant at all, <laughs> I don't know if you can see those. These are all different tweets where he referred to himself as the God. He refers to himself as God. Charles Barkley, one of the great players of all time, is critiquing him. and He says, this clown doesn't have G14 classification to speak on the God. We've never had a real human interaction. It's insecurity when you on TV and take shots at my character after just calling himself the God. And those are all, and there's more of him referring to himself as the God. But the all-time leader in arrogant quotes is, of course, the heavyweight champion, Muhammad Ali. I'm the most recognized and loved man that ever lived because there weren't no satellites when Jesus and Moses were around. So people far away in the villages didn't know about them. That's just one of many, many quotes. But sometimes even the heavyweight champion gets taken down. There's a great story about Muhammad Ali one time on a flight that hit some turbulence. And as the flight is kind of shaking around, people are freaked out. They're taking their seats, and the stewardess, the flight attendant, is coming around telling people, you need to take your seat, you need to buckle your seatbelt. She comes around to Muhammad Ali, and she says, sir, you need to buckle your seatbelt. And he says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she replied, Superman don't need no plane. Very true. All right, so how does all of this talk of pride connect us to our stories 
here in the gospel. We're today we're going to continue on in the third chapter of John, which we started last week. And after the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples leave and they head into the Judean, uh, Judean backcountry, basically. And that's where John the Baptist has been. And when they get there, there's a dispute going on between some of John's disciples and some of the Jewish leaders in Judea. And as we see this play out, we're going to see that John the Baptist faces the temptation to rise up in pride. And yet we see John the Baptist in one of the few stories we have of people responding the way that they are supposed to and refusing to give in to that level of pride. So if you have a Bible, if you have a device, we're going to be in John chapter 3, verse 22 through 30. Read with me. This is right after Nicodemus. After this, Jesus and the disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not been yet put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, they're talking about Jesus, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So Jesus and his disciples... Not all of them yet. Remember, we're still early in the story, so he's got some of his disciples. They head about 50 miles up from where they were into the Judean countryside, and and they start baptizing. He tells us later in chapter 4 that Jesus didn't actually baptize anybody, which I think is extremely wise. Can you imagine how arrogant you'd be if you were like, I got baptized by Jesus? So he has his disciples' baptism. He doesn't do the actual baptizing. But they go up there, and they're in an area called Anon, which is a great place to baptize because it literally means springs or fountain. And it's near Salim, which means peace. So where would you want to get baptized? In the springs near the peace, right? Not exactly a horse trough in the yard, but it's good for us. I love the reasoning that this section gives us for why they are in that area There's no big spiritual reason. It says, because there was water available. That's why they're baptizing. Because there's people that need to get baptized, and there's water. And so they start to baptize. And John is already there baptizing people. And verse 24 gives us a brief foreshadowing of something that's going to come later. It simply tells us that John has not yet been put in prison. Which tells us that at some point, he is going to be put in prison Just a sneak peek towards that. In Matthew, it tells us that John the Baptist gets arrested by Herod, by King Herod. But not for baptizing or preaching. 
and said he gets arrested because he publicly called out Herod for divorcing his first wife and stealing his brother's wife. And when you publicly call out the king of Judea, it usually does not go well for you. And so he ends up in prison and later it will cost him his life. But back to today's scriptures, John's disciples get in an argument with a Jew over purification. And we don't know exactly what this argument is about, but I think we have a pretty good deal, pretty good idea. John is out there baptizing anybody who will come and repent of their sins. He's baptizing Jewish people who will come and repent of their sins. And for the Jewish leaders, this is out of the question. Because to them, if you're Jewish, you don't get baptized. You were already cleansed simply by your Jewishness. And so they don't need to be baptized. And yet John is baptizing all sorts of people. The Jewish people would do ceremonial cleansing, dipping into the mikvah to cleanse from their sins, from their uncleanness, but to be actually fully submerged and baptized was completely unheard of for them. And so this whole argument is happening. The only time that for Jewish people, (coughs) excuse me, would actually get fully immersed baptized was if they were a Gentile who wanted to become a Jew, a proselyte. And so for John to be doing full immersion baptism that was for the repentance of sins and not in order to become a Jewish person was very out of character for the Jewish people. But John's message is that everyone, Jewish or Gentile, needed to, be, needed to repent from their sin and be baptized. And this would have been no small argument for the Jewish leaders of the time. <coughs> the story quickly turns from this theological disagreement and switches to John the Baptist's disciples kind of whining. Thank you, Jeremy. You're the best. You brought bacon and water. John the Baptist's disciples kind of start whining. They're feeling jealous because they once kind of had a corner on the market of this baptism thing. People were coming to see them. They were coming to see John the Baptist for the repentance of sin. And now they're saying, John, everyone's going to see Jesus. Right? They're complaining, like, this is our thing. You were here first, John. This is what you did. You actually baptized him. So how does he get to be the one that everybody goes and sees now? And John the Baptist could have easily thought to himself, yeah, yeah. I am John the Baptist, after all. Shouldn't that be my thing? Shouldn't I be the one that people come to to be baptized? That's what God called me to do. It's what he put me on this earth to do. He could have thought, man, I'm the one who bore witness to who Jesus really is, and yet now he's stealing my thunder. I think it would have been very understandable for John to grow jealous about this if he didn't really understand who he was and who Jesus was. If he had gotten confused about his role in this story, 
he could have been very jealous. And yet, his response is amazing. The first thing that he says to them is, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to them from heaven. John understands the sovereignty of God. He understands that every good and perfect gift is from the Lord. He understands that the fact that he was called with the blessing to be a baptizer is a gift from God to him. He understands that he has no bragging rights in what he's been able to do, but that everything has come from the power of God to him. And all of us need to understand this as well. That every gift that we have, every blessing that we get to be a part of, every calling in our lives is a gift from God. And we have no bragging rights over them. We have no right to become prideful in those things because it's what God has given us. There are blessings from him. And John understands this and he continues. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. John doesn't only have a proper theological understanding of the sovereignty of God. He understands his role in the story. From the very beginning, people said, are, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? He says, no. He says, I'm not even willing to tie his shoes. But I'm, I'm here before him to cry out that he is coming. He tells them really, really clearly, I was, I'm not the Messiah I'm here to prepare the way. He is a herald. You see in those old movies where the king is coming into town and there's the guy who just walks in front. He says, hear ye, hear ye, the king is here, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> That's John. He's the herald. If you're from my generation, you might remember Flava Flav. This is all Flava Flav. He couldn't rap. He couldn't sing. He just was like, Flava Flav. Like that's all he did. He's the herald. Right? This is what John does. And in many ways, it's the same role that we all play in the kingdom of God. We are simply voices crying out, saying, look to Jesus. Look to the Lord. And John was sent before Jesus to declare who he was and that the Messiah was coming. And then in verse 29, John the Baptist gives this beautiful illustration of his role. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, so he's calling himself like the best man, or one of the groomsmen. He says, the friend of the bridegroom, he stands and hears him, and he rejoices greatly in the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He's telling his followers, this is not my wedding. I'm a groomsman, and I get to find joy in the wedding of the groom, which is Jesus, and the bride, which is the church. How terrible of a groomsman would you be if you were in your friend's wedding and you were just whining the whole time that the day wasn't about you? I've heard stories like that, and there's, they're awful. Right? This is what he's saying. He's like, for me to, to complain and whine would be like if I'm the groomsman and I'm just angry that the, the light is not shining on me. It's not my wedding. It's Jesus and the church. And I get to be there. And I love that he says, my joy is fully complete in this. And we see this is one of the last things we see from John in his life. 
he gets to see the wedding start to take place, and then he kind of steps aside because that was his role. Now we come to the verse in this section that I think wraps up the whole idea that we're talking about. <clears throat> it summarizes John the Baptist's whole attitude about this and models for us what our attitude should be. And I've told you before, I'm not into life verses because there's so many that I always say, if I had one, it would be this one. But this could be a good life verse for you. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is John's entire attitude. My goal, my life, my calling, my everything, says John, is that Jesus would increase. That he would be greater and that my role would decrease because I've done what I was called to do and now I just go fade out. This is the heart of this scripture. John's understanding that the kingdom of God is about Jesus. The kingdom of God is about bringing glory and honor to the Lord. And the kingdom was never about him. Why? Why why does John understand that and why does he accept that? I think it's because John understands this. He can't save anybody. John can't take away anybody's sins. John's not going to die on a cross for the sins of mankind. John can't give anybody eternal blessing with the Father in the kingdom of God. He knows who he is and he knows who Jesus is. John the Baptist was out there doing things that nobody had ever seen before and having great success in doing it. But when it came time, he understood that everything he was doing was for the Lord. And this is a lesson that we can take from John in our lives. Some of the great church leaders that came before us understood this. I think I've shared this before, but if I haven't, One of my all-time favorite quotes from anybody ever is from Martin Luther, the great church reformer. Because people started to ask Martin Luther, what do you think about people calling themselves Lutherans? Because people were already calling themselves Lutherans while he was still alive. And he said, in the first place, I ask that men make no reference to my name. Let them call themselves Christians, not Lutherans. What is Luther? After all, the teaching is not mine. Neither was I crucified for anyone. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 would not allow the Christians to call themselves Pauline or Petrine, but Christian. And this is the best part. Ready? How then should I, poor stinking maggot fodder that I am, come to have men call them, call the children of Christ by my wretched name? Not so, my dear friends. Let us abolish all party names and call ourselves Christians after him whose teaching we hold. That's a great line. William Carey is known as the father of the modern mission movement. He was a missionary in the 18th and 19th century to India. He spent over 40 years in India teaching people for the gospel. He died in India in 1834, and his final words after a lifetime of ministry were, you have been saying much about Dr. Carey and his work. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about 
Dr. Carey's Savior. These men understand, though they've done some amazing things in their life, they cannot save anybody. They are simply servants, as John the Baptist was. They understood what John understood, that we are called simply to be heralds in proclaiming the message of Jesus. So what does that mean for us practically? What do we do with our lives, with our calling, with our gifts and our talents? Should we just quietly and timidly go about life? Be like, I don't want to call any attention to myself. Is that, is that what we do? Is that what John the Baptist did? Certainly not. He's out there acting like a total wackadoo for everybody. They're like, this guy wears camel fur and he's eating locusts and honey. He's weird. He's out there. He's proclaiming the message. He's using every gift that God has given him, which one of his gifts is just being weird and not caring what anybody else thinks. He's out there doing something that nobody's done before. And he's building the kingdom, but it's not about him. And I think this is a lesson that we take from this. We don't live our lives fearfully or timidly. We use every gift that God has given us. And we serve the Lord with it. And when, when we have any kind of success, we point back, like, it's not me. God gave me all of this. No good gift comes from anything except from God. We point back to him. I believe this is a lesson for our lives. I stand up here every week and I try to communicate as clearly and powerfully as I can. Not because I hope that you'll come and say, you talk good. Some people do. It's very nice. Thank you. But I do it because I genuinely believe with all of my heart and soul that your lives will be better if you dedicate them to Jesus. And if I can communicate that message, if I can convince you that that's true, and that has some sort of impact on your life, then I can stand back and say, praise God, because he did all of that. For some reason, I'm not terrified to stand up in front of people and talk, even though statistics say more people are afraid of that than death. Do you know that? More people are afraid of this than dying, which is crazy to me, because I'm like, I can talk all day long. But God's allowed me to do this, and I say, God, it's, it's for your glory. I have friends that work in the world of business, And they try to make the best deals and make the best investments and all those things. And yet when it comes down time to how do they use all of the resources and blessings that they have, they say, what does the kingdom of God need me to do? What is God calling me to do? I have friends who are teachers who don't just look at teaching as a paycheck, but as an opportunity to raise young people to know and to understand the love of God. And on and on, you can do anything. What is your gift? What is the calling on your life? What are the relationships that you can use to bring glory to the kingdom of God? Are you a teacher? Are you a business person? Are you an engineer? Are you in technology? Are you a stay-at-home mom? Are you a manager of people? Like, what is it that you can take and use John the Baptist as this model of a man who comes and does something pretty incredible and has amazing success, and yet when it's time for Jesus to get the glory, he stands back and says, yes, it's all for him. That's what all of this is about, because I was sent here to be a herald 
for him. All of these things and many more can be seen as our calling in this world. Make no mistake about it, if you are a Christian, you are in ministry. You might not be in full-time paid ministry, but you are in ministry. Spurgeon said, you're either a missionary or you're a fake. Which is a hard truth, but it's the truth. We are all called to be a part of what God is doing. And our job is to find out how God might use us in the sphere of influence that we have, in the elements of our lives, and remember that our calling is to always come back to this truth, that he must increase. And eventually, we will decrease. We must decrease. This is not about fulfilling our own prideful arrogance. It's not about convincing everyone how great we are. It's about using everything that we have to point to the glory of God. We cannot save anybody. We cannot free sinners. We cannot break bondage. We can't defeat the power of death. But we serve a God who can do all of those things and so many more. Amen?